Matthew chapter 1 this morning, Matthew 1, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph arose from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took her as his wife and kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. I'll pray. Lord, we um, will never fully comprehend all that you have accomplished for us, all that happened when Jesus um, took on humanity and took on our sin and rose again from the dead. But we thank you, God, that this is what has happened, and we can be absolutely clear and certain on it, and that this is the gospel, the good news, by which men are saved, and that it is the very power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And so we ask God that you would again just speak to our hearts, that Christ would be elevated, and that he would receive that proper um, worship that he is due. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, I told you that um, I would give a Christmas message, and this morning I, I'm being a little ambitious here, but I actually want to look at three passages of Scripture. The first here in Matthew 1, and then in Isaiah, and then in Philippians. And here in Matthew, again, I can't spend much time on any of these passages, and so maybe I'm trying to bite off more than is reasonable. But I, I wanted to just to highlight a couple things here from chapter 1 of Matthew. We've been looking at Matthew lately, in our, and as, as I've been preaching, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. And so we're going backwards a bit here. Um, but this is one of, t- this Matthew gospel starts with the genealogy of Jesus. And it's only one of the four gospels, of the t- two of the four gospels that do that, Matthew and Luke. And when you look at the genealogies, for us, it's not easy to comprehend what's going on because it looks as though both genealogies run through Joseph, which is not the case. In a Jewish genealogy, they never mention the names of women. And so the way that you would would show that it was a woman's genealogy and not the genealogy of her husband is that the first name in the genealogy would be without the definite article, the. And that's the case with Luke's genealogy. And so that is a very clear hint to the Jewish reader that Luke's genealogy is about Mary, is is Jesus through Mary. Whereas with Matthew's genealogy, it is clearly the genealogy of Joseph, which would be expected because Matthew was a Jew writing to Jews. It is the only one of the four Gospels that was written explicitly to the Jewish people. 
And the Jewish people would have been most concerned to have known who the father of Jesus was. And so he had to just settle that question right out of the gate with the opening lines of this gospel. Let's just settle it once and for all. Who is the father of Jesus? So he starts with the genealogy of Joseph. But we all know, and so did Matthew, Joseph was not the father of Jesus. And so there is nothing here that would indicate that he is. And Matthew, knowing this, he is going to give us Joseph's genealogy, knowing full well this does not mean that Jesus and Joseph are related. Joseph was not the father of Jesus. It's questionable whether he was even the adopted father of Jesus because that's never mentioned. But he clearly was not the biological father of Jesus. So Matthew wanted to just settle it for the Jewish mind once and for all. Jesus and Joseph are not related, and Jesus does not have right to the throne because of Joseph. They're not even related. So this is to establish who Joseph is, but also to establish that Jesus is not his son. And if Jesus were his son, then according to Joseph's genealogy, Jesus would have been actually disqualified from being king, not qualified. The reason being, as we'll see, is because Joseph is related to a man named Jeconiah. That's in verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, to Jeconiah was born Shealtiel, to Shealtiel, Zerubbabel, and on down till we get to, to um, Joseph, the husband of Mary. What's the point about Jeconiah? Jeremiah had prophesied very clearly in Jeremiah 22 that no son of Jeconiah would ever sit on the throne. Matthew knew that prophecy. So even if Joseph and Jesus had been related, the connection to Jeconiah would have disqualified Jesus from sitting on the throne of David. So David, Jesus is the son of David. He is the root and offspring of David. Absolutely. It's one of his titles, son of David. But his right to rule does not come through Joseph. Joseph was not his father. And if Joseph had been his father, he still could not have ruled because Jeconiah was in the family tree. Jesus' right to rule comes through Mary, not through Joseph. Matthew, fully understanding this, goes, now we can have some fun with this genealogy. I don't have to follow the rules, Matthew is telling us, because Jesus is not related to Joseph, and Joseph it does ha has no right to sit on the throne. So let's have some fun with this genealogy. So what Matthew does, he says, we don't even have to include all the names because it doesn't make any difference. So Matthew does something that no other person does who writes down a Jewish genealogy and he purposely omits certain people. Just randomly. He just omits them. Well, he says, well, that's fun. Let's just keep going. And he says, while we're at it, why don't we do something else that would never happen in a Jewish genealogy? Let's mention the names of women. And so he mentions four. And so the first is Tamar in verse 3. And to Judah was born Perez and, to, and Zerah by Tamar. And then we come down to verse 5. And to Solomon was born Boaz by Rahab. And to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth. And then we come to the fourth. 
And that's in verse 6, And to David was born Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. And so four women are mentioned. You would never have a single woman mentioned. Why would Matthew do this? Because he says, since this, is, this genealogy does not establish who Jesus' father is, it does not establish Jesus' right to rule, then let me just play with it and make it say what we would not be able to say if it were a valid genealogy. If it were a valid genealogy, no names would be skipped and no women's names would be inserted. But, but it's because it's not a valid genealogy establishing Christ's right to rule. He says, and let me bring some things out of Christ's genealogy, um, Joseph's genealogy that we would not otherwise see. And so what we see here is that these, these are not just four random women. These are four um, women that he has selected to put in. There are other women more significant he put, could have put in. He could have put in Sarah, the wife of Abraham. He didn't. So there were other women he omitted, but these four he included. Now, some commentators would say two of the four women were Gentiles. Others would say three of the four women were Gentiles. Arnold Frutenbaum would say all four women were Gentiles. So that would include Uriah, I mean, sorry, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Arnold Frutenbaum would say she too was a Hittite and that she was a Gentile. But even if it's three of the four Gentile women and three of the four women were sexually immoral. The first, Tamar, guilty of incest with her father-in-law. The second, Rahab, a prostitute. And then we have Ruth, a virtuous woman, and then her, who was the wife, had been the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, guilty of adultery. So four women, one story. And that is that God has come in the person of Jesus Christ to save all people. Men and women alike, Jew and Gentile alike, and sinners. And so that's what makes this, this statement said to Joseph so significant in verse 21, he will save his people from their sins. He will do that. And so Matthew says, I'm just going to bring out that truth in the genealogy of Jesus. Since it's not a valid genealogy establishing his right to rule, I want to say what you would not see if this were a genealogy that established Christ's right to rule. And that is, Jesus came to save all people. Gentiles, Jews, sinners, Christ came to save. And that is significant. And it would not have been lost on Joseph and certainly was not lost on Matthew. So it's a huge thing. Some have also said there's a story, as you look at these four women, Tamar, um, the sinner. Incest is about as gross of sexual sin as you could have. Rahab, a picture of faith. Yes, she was a prostitute, but what the script stands out in, in the scripture about her life story is that she was a person of faith. Ruth, a picture of salvation where she was a Moabite living in a foreign land, and she is privileged to come into a saving relationship with God as she embraced the God of Israel. And Bathsheba, a picture of restoration. Sinners, by faith, receive salvation, 
and are restored to relationship with God. So there's an amazing story of grace that Matthew weaves through the genealogy here of Joseph. Before leaving chapter 1, I do also want to just point out a couple things. Clearly, the emphasis here is that Jesus is not related to Joseph, and Jesus' physical birth is not due to Joseph, but it is due to God, specifically to the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. No reason to go wonky on this and crazy about it as the Mormons do. I mean, the Mormons just, they just make this an obscene act where they would say that God had sexual relations with this woman. That would be anything but a holy offspring. And this was holy. There was no sexual act. Mary was a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus. We don't know how God accomplished this, but I think it was no more problematic for him than it was in creating the universe. He simply spoke it into being. And he could just speak into being a child into, in, into the womb of Mary. And I believe that's what he did. Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. What's that about? Well, it's not difficult to understand. She comes back from visiting her aunt, Elizabeth, and she comes back showing. She is more than a little pregnant. She can't hide the bump anymore. And she's been gone for these months and, and comes back pregnant. Joseph can only assume that she has been involved with a man. And she pleads her case and says, Joseph, you've got to believe me. It's no man has been involved. This is simply what God has done. What reasonable man would believe that? What reasonable man would believe this? And he wants to believe it, but he can't believe it. Really? This is an impossibility. It is insanity. There is no way I can accept this. He's a righteous man. That means two things. One, we know that righteousness is because of faith in the promises of God. Abraham believed God, and it was recognized to him righteousness. But righteousness is also an indication of a person walking in adherence with God's word. Righteous people don't live disobedient to God's word, is, the, is how the Old Testament portrays righteous people. They believe in God and they obey God. It's not one or the other. It's both. You believe and you obey. Well, Joseph, as soon as he hears this incredible news, not incredible in a good sense, but incredible in the literal sense. It is beyond credibility. He goes, the, clearly, she has been immoral. And God's word has spoken clearly to this. It has to be exposed, Deuteronomy 22. And it has also said clearly, when it's exposed, one of two things is going to come out. Either she was raped or she was not. And if she was raped then the man who raped her will die. And if she was not, then they will both die. Mary is not claiming rape. So Joseph can only assume it was a consensual, immoral relationship. And to expose her seems to be his only biblical option. He can't marry her. 
She is worthy of condemnation. She should be stoned. So he's simply trying to find a way to fulfill his righteous obligation to obey God's word while not being responsible for her death. So he's trying to find a way to secretly do what Scripture tells him he must do. And that's why he needed an angel to talk to him. And so it says, verse 20, When he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Now here's the explanation. For that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Let me paraphrase that. That which has been conceived of her is something God has done. Therefore, Deuteronomy 22 does not apply to her. Therefore, you can take her as your wife and not be violating Scripture. See, he needed this word. He needed this word from God. Otherwise, had he married her without this, he would have lived for the rest of his life thinking, perhaps I made a mistake. Perhaps I have violated Scripture in marrying this woman. So the angel appears to him and says, there's no violation of Scripture because she has not sinned. This is the offspring of God, as it were. This is the activity of God. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now, I, I don't know on this. I wouldn't go to the wall on it, but I just wonder... If verse 22, where it starts out now, I wonder if this is not parenthetical. If this is not a narrative, um, a third-person narrative being, being inserted into the story as we would normally see. I wonder if the angel is continuing to speak to him here. So we, don't, we can't say for sure. I don't think the Greek text would bear this out one way or the other. So it could very well be, and I like to think that it is, that the angel is still speaking in verse 22. Now all this took place that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. In other words, the angel is telling Joseph, this is a fulfillment of Isaiah 9. It is not a violation of Deuteronomy 22. Because this man would have needed more than a dream, because dreams can be wrong. He would have needed the Word of God to know that he is not violating the Word of God. And so the angel, I wonder if, his, if the angel is not quoting Scripture to him so that he can know Mary is fulfilling Scripture, not violating Scripture. You see? And so he goes, I got it. And so therefore, he marries her not simply on the basis of a dream, but on the basis of Scripture being fulfilled. That's what a righteous man does. A righteous man does not live his life based on dreams. He lives his life based on what God has said in his word. And when I think, I just see it this way, that's when Joseph understands this is the fulfillment of God's prophecy saying that the virgin shall be with child. He goes, I get it. Mary is not to be stoned. Mary is to be applauded. By faith, she has allowed God to act upon her as she said, Behold, the bondservant of the Lord, be it done unto me according to your word. And God has done this. And Joseph, with eyes wide open, 
And knowing how much this is going to cost him and cost Mary, he says yes to the Lord. And in faith and in obedience, he takes her as his wife. I'm thinking Joseph is one of the greatest people in all of Scripture. This cost him everything. For the rest of his life, he was branded as a fool, as an imbecile. You believe what? Because nobody else believed it. Jesus' own half-brothers and sisters didn't believe it. There is not a single time in the Bible that Joseph is ever called the father of Jesus. One time in John, it's unbelievers that are saying, is this not Jesus whose father is Joseph? And it's the unbelievers who say that. God never calls Joseph the father of Jesus. No believer ever makes that reference. And never is Jesus called the son of Joseph. Only the unbelievers ever throw that back. And they don't believe it. Because the unbelievers did not believe that Joseph was the father of Jesus. It's also in John that, I believe it's John, might be Luke, but I think it's John, where the Pharisees said to Jesus, we know who our father is, but we don't know who yours is. You were born entirely in fornication, is what they say of Jesus. So they didn't believe this, and Joseph would have known, for the rest of my life and for the rest of Mary's life, we're going to be branded as fools for believing what nobody would ever believe, that this woman, a virgin, gave birth to a child because of what the Holy Spirit did. And Jesus would have been labeled as an illegitimate child. Living with that stigma, that scorn, his entire life. Which brings me to Isaiah 52 and 53. So if you turn your Bibles to Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13. Isaiah 52, 13 to the end of chapter 53 is one unit. It's an unfortunate chapter break. Um, it shouldn't be there. If you're going to put chapter divisions anywhere, it should have been at the end of Isaiah 52, 12, and not at 53 where it is. There are 15 verses here of five stanzas of three verses each. And the first one begins, my servant will prosper. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. And that's the theme for this section of scripture, Isaiah 52, 13 through 53. My servant shall, be, shall prosper and he will be exalt, high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Many take that to be a reference to the beating that Christ took prior to his crucifixion. I've heard, I've heard it said that when Mussolini was killed um, and his corpse was hung up after World War II, that the crowd stood and, and just assaulted his body with sticks and stones because they hated the man so much. And when they were finished with him, you couldn't even tell who it had ever been. And that's the imagery here used of Jesus. 
Some people believe that's what Pilate was saying when he said, behold, the man, that he may have actually been saying, behold, is this a man? Because he took such beating from his assailants. Soldier after soldier standing and pounding him in the fist, pounding with their fists in his face. He was marred beyond any man. His appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the son of man. Verse 15, thus he will, and most of our translations say sprinkle, the better translation is startle. Thus he will startle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. What they had not heard, they will understand. Understand what? He's the exalted one. He will be exalted more highly than anyone has ever been exalted. This one who didn't even look like a human being when they had finished beating him. People will be startled when they see him in his glory. The same ones who looked upon him and beat him and pierced him through at crucifixion will look on him and be startled. Verse, chapter 53, verse 1, the second stanzas. And this is, the first is, my servant shall prosper. Suffering leads to glory. I'm borrowing this outline from another author. In the second stanza, who has believed our report? And the, in the inference, the suffering is offensive. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot. The marginal reading says, like a suckling. And again, I'm no agriculturalist. That would be my wife. She loves plants. We have plants everywhere. She grew up on a, you know, where they raised tomatoes, and what they did with suckers is they nipped them off. You don't keep suckers. You don't nurture suckers. You get rid of them. That's how Jesus is being described, one that you get rid of. Like a root out of parched ground. A root, a tender plant that grows up out of parched ground doesn't survive. It needs water to survive. It dies. The imagery here is not just of tenderness, but it is of one who had, there is no expectation of surviving, much less being exalted. And he is the exalted one. But God the Father had his eye on him and made sure that all would go as he had planned. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Apparently, Jesus was not an attractive man, not a good-looking man. When he walked down the street, you didn't turn around and go, wow, that was a good-looking guy. You wouldn't have looked twice. He would have been virtually invisible, the kind of person you don't even see, you don't take notice of. Verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. We didn't esteem him. We did not value him. We did not see the worth of who he was. Despised and forsaken, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We were talking in the Sunday school class this morning about Solomon said, with much wisdom comes much grief. With the added knowledge comes added sorrow. I've often thought about Jesus in that context because he is certainly the wisdom of God according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He is the wisdom of God personified, Jesus Christ. 
And that being the case, there was no one who had a better idea of what things should be than Jesus. He is the creator of this world. Can you imagine being the creator of this world and walking on this planet and everything you look at is less than what it should be? It is not what you created it to be. Nothing. Every tree, every bird, everything you'd look at is under the curse of sin. It is less than what he, the creator, created it to be. If that doesn't bring you grief and sorrow, I don't know what would. He would have a man who was filled with grief and sorrow. People would hide their face from him, despised of men. Why is that? Verse 4 begins the third stanzas. Surely our griefs he himself bore. The reason for his, for his suffering, the reason why he was being rejected was because he suffered for you and I. The suffering was vicarious. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. That's how we see him, and that's why we despised him, because we all despise weakness. We despise, when we're really honest about it, the smells and the unsightliness of diseased people. It's awful. My dear mom, she had the strongest gag reflex of anybody I've ever known, and I inherited it. And she, nonetheless, had a loving, compassionate heart and would often be in the nursing homes visiting people. And when I was my first year in college, all the first-year students for their ministries were assigned the nursing home because that's the only place they could trust us. We didn't know anything, so they'd just send you to the nursing home. And I couldn't stand it. I'm ashamed to admit it, but the, the smells were beyond anything I could cope with. And I didn't want to walk through a nursing home gagging and being on the verge of vomiting. And I asked my mom, I said, Mom, how do you do this? Because I know your gag reflex is every bit as strong as mine. And she goes, well, I've got this secret. So what's that? She goes, I take a handkerchief and I spray it with perfume. And every time I'm about ready to gag, I put, put my handkerchief up to my nose so I can just smell the perfume. So she didn't stay away from the nursing homes. She just took some perfume on a handkerchief. Jesus is one that causes people to gag. That's what's being said here. Despised and forsaken. People's gag reflex would go off when they saw how he suffered. And he suffered for us. He wasn't suffering because of any sin in his own life. But that's the first thought. We suffer because of what we've done. And they thought that about Jesus. He is, being, he is smitten and stricken of God. No. It's because of us. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our peace, literally what it should be, for our peace, Peace with God, ultimately, fell upon him. By his scourging, we are healed, healed of our sin. This is very clear in 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25. Is there healing in the atonement? Very common question that people ask. Should we name it and claim it when it comes to healing? Yes, absolutely there is healing in the atonement. Does that mean that God is going to heal everything now while we are living on this planet in these physical bodies? Absolutely not. 
We should pray for healing, and we can have, see God heal. But there is nothing in Scripture that would lead us to the expectation that God will heal everything now. In fact, Scripture says we have a hope that when Christ returns, the curse will be lifted and everything will be restored to what God originally intended it to be. And we live with that hope. 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25 makes it clear the healing here is not the healing of disease, but it is the healing of our souls from sin. All of us, verse 6, like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. That's what this is about. This is the summary statement of this whole section. We have gone our own way. The Lord has caused our iniquity to fall on him. He is not suffering for what he has done. He is suffering for what we have done. These words here that are being used, smitten of God and afflicted, I am so glad I came across this. For years, when I, as I've been teaching through First and Second Kings, I pointed out to our students at His Hill that leprosy is a picture of sin. And the healing of leprosy is a picture of salvation. I'm not big into pictures and, and, and types and that kind of thing, and I, need to, I know we need to be very careful about reading types into Scripture. But I believe that we can say that leprosy is consistently in the Bible a picture of sin for a number of reasons. One, it is incurable, just like our sin is. Nobody can ever save himself from his own sin. It requires a Savior. We cannot deliver ourselves from our own sin. Because of how the law commanded that lepers be treated, they were to be ostracized. They were to be cut off from society. They could not live in normal relationships with others. It caused alienation, in other words, just as our sin has caused us to be alienated from God. It results ultimately in death. It causes the desensitization of your nerve endings. We know that now from leprosy. The reason people would lose their, their ears and their noses and their fingers was not because they were rotting off, but because the nerve endings are being killed by the leprosy and the rats in the city dumps where they lived were gnawing off those body parts without them ever being able to feel it because the sensitivity has been destroyed, just as sin does. It destroys sensitivity to God. It destroys relationships with others. It alienates us from others. It makes us the outcast of society. It brings about death, and there is no cure for it. For all these reasons, leprosy is a perfect picture in the Bible of sin. And guess what? This is the other thing I've been telling the students for years. And Jesus became a leper for you and me. That's what this passage is describing. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I came across in a book I've had in, in my stack for a long time, an author here, um, seminary professor, who, who has researched this and looked back into rabbinical writings and has found that it, is, it, it was the expectation of the Jewish people that Jesus would come and be a leper. I never knew that. And so they were torn over this, but it says 
Just read some of these things. Another Jewish legend says that one of the names of the Messiah would be the leper. We read in Sanhedrin 98b, the Messiah, what is his name? The rabbis say, the leper scholar, as it is said, surely he has borne our griefs, carried away our sorrows, yet we did esteem him a leper, smitten of God and afflicted, from here in Isaiah. The Baal Shem Tov, about 1698, the founder of the Hasidic movement was riding one day with a young student. He stopped his wagon at the hut of an old leper, horribly afflicted with the disease. The rabbi climbed down and spent a great deal of time with the poor man. And when he returned to the wagon and recommenced his journey, the puzzled students asked the rabbi, what, who is it that, this, that the rabbi had visited with? The rabbi replied that in every generation there is a Messiah who will reveal himself in the genera- if the generation is worthy. Now, that's not true, but this is their expectation. Every generation God brings a Messiah, and if the generation is worthy, he will reveal himself. And then he says, the leper he had been meeting with was that Messiah. This is the founder of the Hasidic movement. But the generation was not worthy, so the Messiah would depart. Where did this leper Messiah idea come from? And then he goes on, he says, the fact that Jesus touched a leper, an unclean body during his life, does not disqualify from him from Messiahship. This is especially true in light of the rabbinic doctrine concerning the leper Messiah taken from Isaiah 53. Contact with leprosy was a requirement for being the Messiah, an authenticating qualification rather than a disqualification. Another rabbi goes on, he says, The rabbi struggled with Isaiah 53, for they saw either the Messiah's sufferings as leprosy or split the Messiah in two, one a sufferer and one a conqueror. The Hebrew words in Isaiah 53, 4, stricken and smitten, are interpreted as referring to a leprous condition. Here's the point. As a leper was despised and rejected of men, so also was the Messiah despised and rejected. And still today, there are many who see Jesus as being as repugnant as leprosy and his followers as those who should be isolated and shunned. To the followers of the suffering one, his afflictions described in Isaiah 53 are the agonies of one dying to provide atonement. There was no more despised, despicable, condition of man in the Old Testament than to be full of leprosy. That's what's being described in Isaiah. Jesus became a leper for you and me, the most despised of humanity. And it was for us. The Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before his shears. He did not open his mouth. This is amazing. And this is now the beginning of the next stanza. And that is the oppressed Jesus. He humbled himself. He accepted the suffering. One author says nobody's ever silent in suffering, at least not in our hearts. There's always one of two responses to suffering. Either we complain to God because we don't deserve it, or we are confessing our sin because we know we're getting what we deserve. So it's either confession or complaint on the lips of everybody who suffers, not Jesus. 
not Jesus. He didn't deserve it. He was not complaining. And there was nothing to confess. He simply accepted it as the will of his Father. Not something he enjoyed, not something he looked forward to three times in the Garden of Gethsemane with, with sweating blood. Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. And it was not the Father's will. And Jesus silently, quietly accepted what was the Father's will for him. This in itself, the silence of Jesus in his suffering, is supernatural. It shows he was not guilty, he was not complaining, and he had nothing to confess. The final humiliation, verse 8, the oppression and judgment, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was condemned. As for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, literally, he was cut off from the land of life. I'm thinking that's a reference to being cut off from the Father. Because where he was dwelling on the earth was not the land of the living. But he was, that fellowship with the Father was broken. And that's the life that was cut off. For the transgression of my people to whom this stroke was due, his grave was assigned, this is the final indignation, his grave indignity, his, his grave was assigned to be with wicked men, yet with the rich man in his death. You don't bury good, righteous men with rich men because the rich were considered to be righteous. But you would put them in a pauper's grave, in an unmarked grave. And that, was, that is exactly what was intended for Jesus until Joseph of Arimathea stepped in and said, no, he'll go in my grave. Although he had done no violence, in other words, he was not guilty of any capital offense that it would have warranted his death, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. He was innocent. But we esteemed him a leper. But the Lord was pleased, and this is the final stanzas, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. The suffering of Christ was efficacious. It accomplished what God wanted it to accomplish. It was not pointless, even though for most of humanity we see him as nothing more than a leper to be despised. That is not how God in heaven sees him. God was pleased to crush him. It doesn't mean it brought pleasure to him. He didn't enjoy it, but it means that this was the plan of God, the will of God. If he would offer himself as a guilt offering, again, substitutionary atonement for us, he will see his offspring. Jesus will see his offspring, which he does now. Millions and millions and millions who have placed their faith in him. He will prolong his days for all of eternity. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. Who will see it and be satisfied? The Father God. He looks on what Jesus has done and he is satisfied, or in other words, he is propitiated. The justice of God has been satisfied. All that needed to be accomplished for our sin to be paid for 
has been accomplished, and God is satisfied. So if God is satisfied, is there anything left? No. That's why Jesus would say from the cross, it is finished. There is nothing we can add to what Jesus did. Just receive him and all that he has done. As a result of the anguishes of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. How many is many? Well, if you go to Romans chapter 5, it is all. It is all. But it is dependent also, in Romans 5 says, on receiving what he has done. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He is not going to be just despised. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. I see in these last verses pretty much everything that needs to be covered is covered in Christ's work on our behalf. First, he poured himself out to death. The renunciation of his own life, of his own will. He was numbered with the transgressors, identification with you and I. He bore the sin of many, substitution. And then finally, he interceded for the transgressors, mediation. This is what we need. We need a Savior who will renounce himself in his own interest and give himself for us. Jesus has done that. We need one who will fully identify with us, even in our sin. Not by sinning, but by taking our sin upon himself. We need one who will willingly substitute himself for you and I, because we could never pay for our own sin. And we need one who will stand as a mediator between us and a holy God. And Jesus is that mediator. He is our advocate. He has propitiated the Father. As we read <clears throat> on a candlelight service from Philippians chapter 2, the story is no longer of a suffering servant, despised of men, regarded as smitten by God, one that is as, as abhorrent as a leper, but the story is now of one exalted. Philippians 2, 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore, and this is the story now, therefore also God highly exalted him, as Isaiah 52 started out by saying, and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.
I think the application here is not difficult. Not difficult to make, maybe difficult to accept. I would trust that most of us, if not all of us in this room, have seen through what Jesus did. And we've moved past that place of abhorrence and despising him. Why would somebody place their faith in such a one? We've moved past that, I trust. And we've recognized that that wasn't, he wasn't, he did not live the life he lived, suffer as he suffered because of his own sin, but because of our sin. But have you, but see, you won't get, you won't see that until you've seen your sin. And begin to see just how vile and wicked and ugly it is. And then we say, oh, how I need a Savior. And Jesus took that vileness, that wickedness, that evil upon himself. Every smidgen of it. I have seldom ever talked about it in my whole life. Because it's experiential and nobody should preach experience or base their faith on experience. But when I was in junior high, um, I was in a youth meeting at another church out of the city. And the doors were closed and the youth were in there, junior high and high school. And they put two chairs in the middle of the room, turned down all the lights. And on one of the chairs, they put a candle. And the other chair was empty for you to go and sit. And in darkness, with nobody saying anything, confess your sin. I didn't ever go sit in that chair. But I sat there for well over an hour listening to kid after kid go forward. And really in the, what was solitude before God, it wasn't performance, it wasn't for anybody else, but each kid sitting there as though he were the only person in the room and acknowledging his sin and confessing it. And I sat on the, over on the wall and began to weep like I have never wept in my life because God was showing me my own sin. And I have never had such a profound experience of knowing my sin and knowing the love and grace of God. Now, I'm not preaching experience here, and I'm not saying put a candle on a chair and confess your sin. Far be it. But I am saying it changed everything. Once I began to see my sin, I can understand and appreciate God's grace and God's love for me. You don't move beyond that. This is what's being portrayed in Isaiah 52 and 53. All that happened to Jesus is because we deserved it. We are the lepers. And he became the leper to remove our sin from us. That being the case, we're not worshiping a baby on Christmas. We're worshiping the King of Kings who has been exalted to the highest places, given a name above every name, one whom eventually every tongue will confess and every knee will bow before. By God's grace, we have a bit of a jump start on that. And every day 
is meant to be a day of confessing his name and bowing our knee before the one who is worthy, who became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If you've not yet recognized Jesus is not a leper, and any abhorrence that you may feel in your heart for him as this world does, it is the one name that you can never mention without repercussion. Jesus. Jesus. You can talk about God. You can talk about the Holy Spirit. Jesus. It's the one name that is still abhorred above all names. But it's also the most highly exalted name. I pray that as I've read these texts, these three texts this morning, that you will recognize what the angel said to Joseph. He is the one who has come to save his people from their sin. And that you would not despise him, not a moment longer. But you would recognize that everything is, that is despicable about him is because of what is despicable about you. And you are a sinner who need God's saving grace. And that grace has been offered to you in Jesus. And all we need to do is recognize him for who he is, my Savior, and say, Jesus, thank you for saving me. And in that moment, you're his, cleansed by the blood of Christ. The certificate of debt against you canceled, born again by the Spirit of God with the right to become a child of God because you have simply received Christ the Savior. I'll close this in prayer. <clears throat> Thank you for coming into this world, God, for taking upon yourself humanity, living as you intended for every human being to live in loving, dependent obedience to you, that God might be imaged in our humanity. But I thank you that you not only came and showed us how man was designed to live. You took our sin, every bit of it, upon yourself and took the punishment that we rightly deserve for our sin against a holy God. And I thank you, O oh God, that you have been completely satisfied with what Jesus has done. I pray that we would be too. That we would not try to add to what Christ has done by anything on our part. But that we would simply receive Jesus and his work for us. We would recognize, God, that the atonement is complete and finished. There is nothing more for us to do. And that as children on Christmas morning, we would delight in not just the gift of eternal life, but the giver. And we would say thank you with hearts of wonder and awe at what you accomplished, what you suffered on our behalf. In Jesus' name.